You are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that focuses on living and working with intent. Not just sucking it up, but thinking differently. I'm Dr. Rob Orman, and this is our final show of 2020. And I'll tell you in advance that there are parts of what's to come in the next half hour that are emotionally intense because our guest spoke with us when he had what turned out to be six months left to live. It wasn't a mystery to him, as you'll see in the conversation. I mean, he, he knew that was coming. But with that knowledge, he spoke with aplomb, clarity, and without a filter about what he learned about himself, his family, his career as a physician, just medicine in general, and the secret of life. Yeah, that's in here. When all of the background noise quieted, he figured it out. And you know what? It wasn't complicated. The great secrets rarely are. In fact, they're usually hiding in plain sight. I started my hospitalist shift first of seven days, and I think I had 24 patients to see. I had three admissions by 7.30, which is somewhat unusual. The ICU was very full and complex, and I developed a mild headache. You know, finished my shift 12, 13 hours, whatever it is. Woke up the next day with a headache, the same headache. That is Dr. Christian Maurer, age 46, internist, hospitalist. And what he just described, I suspect we've all felt mild headache and a shift, but this headache didn't go away. It stuck around for days and then a week. And it was interesting on that seventh day, one of the PAs who knows me really well, Heather said, you know, what's wrong with you, Maurer? I'm like, I just got a headache. I'm really tired. No, no, something else is going on. Shift is over. Headache's still there, but now some concerning symptoms develop. We make homemade tomato sauce, and so you brown off the garlic in some olive oil. So I went to the cabinet to get the olive oil. Stacy, my wife, was right by the stove, and I came out with the olive oil bottle, you know, got ready to pour it, and she's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just going to pour some olive oil and brown the garlic off. Well, there was no olive oil bottle in my hand. And I went back three other times, and thinking that the bottle of olive oil was in my hand, and it wasn't. It took the fifth time before I actually looked at it and concentrated and got it. And at that point, I was very worried because now I had a witness and it wasn't just myself alone. Next day, Friday the 13th, 2018, Christian actually feeling pretty good. But just to be on the safe side, goes to the ED, has an MRI. And so then the radiology tech escorted me back to the reading room. So I went back and I just thought it was just professional courtesy, review the images with the radiologist. And so I was like, hey, did you find anything? And he's like, yeah, man, have a seat. And I thought to myself, bullshit, you didn't find anything. And uh, he just had this glum look. And then he pulled up the MRI images, which had a three centimeter right frontal mass and then four small sub-centimeter tumors on the right motor sensory strip, which kind of explained the symptoms I was having. The tumor or tumors look like glioblastoma. Shortly after getting the diagnosis or the presumptive diagnosis in original imaging studies, Christian traveled three hours to the university hospital to see the specialist who, as it would happen, had a brother who died from glioblastoma. He said, we need to do surgery. And he said, well, what if I don't do surgery? He's like, well, you got a month to live then. And that was a shock. A week later, surgery. The first surgery he'd ever had, except for wisdom tooth extraction. Remember, there were four tumors, the big frontal tumor, and then three smaller tumors. 
The frontal tumor was removed, but not the three others. And decided that if they remove those tumors, that I would be hemiplegic. I'm glad they didn't remove because I've had, you know, a really nice six months of doing a lot of fun things. And then a month of healing, 30 radiation treatments with temozolomide, an oral chemotherapeutic drug. Christian had some post-operative pain, some medications worked, some didn't. But here's a pearl in the midst of all of this, a pain management pearl that he didn't expect. Ice, which was kind of overlooked. We don't overlook it in orthopedic injuries, but the ice actually had more effect as an analgesic than, say, the fentanyl. Just putting it right on your scalp. Right on the scalp. This interview was recorded six months after Christian's diagnosis of multicentric glioblastoma. I asked Christian to come on the show because he's got wisdom to share about life, death, and the practice of medicine. This is going to come in two parts. In part one, what you learn when you look into the void, when you know that death is right around the corner. And in part two, we're going to get down, we're going to get gritty, and we're going to get some sometimes esoteric clinical golden nuggets from a real pro. Here we go. What's the treatment plan? What's the, what's the future of how this is going to be managed and the prognosis? So the prognosis is dismal. Time zero patients with GBM have 12 to 14 months with standard of care, which is radiation and temozolomide. I don't think I've had one single MRI where it's stable. It's definitely growing. And then I'm also been wearing something called Optune, which is basically electrodes that are applied to the scalp that prevent rapidly dividing cells from replicating. And apparently the chemotherapeutic drug and this Optune work synergistically. You know, I'm really looking to get that 12 months. You, you know, you think, oh, 12 to 14 months, but you, know, you read about plenty of people with GBM my age, which is 46, of getting two months and then dying. I still have seizures about two to three times a day. These are the sensory seizures where I get this electrical sensation on the right side of my nose and right lip and tongue and teeth. So when something like this happens, people feel at a loss as to what to say. What are the things that personally you felt were the right things to say and what, for lack of a better word, pissed you off? I think the right things to say are things that are gentle. And it also depends on where the person is in this diagnosis, like, you know, if it's day one, week one, you really want to have gentle statements, you know, maybe three or four or five months out of what are you doing with yourself? You know, don't waste this time. That kind of stuff is more appropriate. But I think initially, I think it's even as an ER doctor, you know, I'm sorry, we've given you such bad news, but there are treatments for this. And it's sort of the same kind of garbage that the oncologists throw at people like, oh, we can treat this. And I think that's what you actually you want to hear, even though I knew I was fucked as soon as I looked at that MRI. I mean, the amount of cerebral edema, I can't believe I was alive. I mean, looking at that MRI and walking around and doing hospital shift, seven days of it. It should be gentle. I'm sorry. I'm here for you if you need me. You can always call back to the ER. And even if I'm not here, you could talk to one of my partners. If you had questions, you know, we're going to set you up with oncology. That's as a professional. But then as for your friends, the same type of thing. I'm sorry. Let's go get a beer. I'm here for you if you need me. Don't hesitate to call. But here's the thing about it is when you've got cancer and everybody else is working with their kids and you're not calling, you don't call anybody. Like even if you needed somebody, you know, unless you're like 
on the floor, your wife is out at work, and you know, of course, you'd call your wife first. I mean, you'd call somebody if you were on the floor and say, "Hey, I just shit myself on the floor." Rob, come over and help me up and get me in the shower. But for the most part, you're not going to call people. And what do you really need? Like, you know, if you're faced with all these appointments and things like that, maybe you need a ride. But what people need that have cancer is, hey, I'm picking you up. We're going to the movies. I'm halfway there already so that they can't back out of it. You know, hey, um, I'm bringing over Chinese food and I've rented Crimson Tide. And then we're going to have like a eight hour discussion about who is right, Denzel Washington or Gene Hackman. You know, that's what you need when you have cancer. You don't need to hear about cancer and don't ask me how the cancer's going. The cancer's going shitty. It's in my brain, you know, all this work and energy and money I put into my brain, you know, to become a physician. My brain is trying to kill me. And I think that's the worst questions going on to your other thing. What's the wrong thing to say? You can beat this. What do you mean you can beat this? I'll be the first person to beat it. You know, like everybody dies from this. This is like the worst cancer you can get as a human. And the other thing is, is, you know, bringing up the diagnosis in every future conversation. And that's a pain in the ass. Let me have my little bit of denial, you know, for the 10 minutes that we're together, you know, in the hallway about, you know, having terminal brain cancer. Like, I just want to hear about an interesting ER case, a fantastic trip to Hawaii that you're about to go on. You know, I want to hear about that stuff. I don't want to hear about anything to do with myself because it's still a process. The question that I hate the most is, how are you? Or how do you feel? In an instant, my whole career is taken away. You know, I'm talking to my kids about death and I have to pick out gravesite and... Asking someone how they're doing. I mean, that's like a common thing you say to somebody, right? Hey, how's no. it going? What's up? What's up? How, no. you, how you doing? What's a better way to ask that? What's a better thing to say or to ask? Hey, did you see that National Geographic that they found that there was no hidden chamber behind King Tut's? Yeah, I did. That's fascinating. Don't ask how I'm doing. You know, I have terminal brain cancer. My children are going to grow up without their father. I'm doing shitty, you know, but I'm still able to wipe my ass and I can get in the shower myself. So that's pretty good for most people that have cancer. Don't talk about me or, you know, you could say, hey, do you need anything? Nope. Great. Hey, I'm reading this book. People with cancer don't want to talk about cancer. And if they do, they'll bring it up. So you went from one day being practicing physician, you've talked about that, and it wasn't just going through the motions. You previously had a successful clinic, then you were a hospitalist, not only a hospitalist, and you're running the ICU, seen as a leader, seen as having mastery of the craft, and the next day, your life turns around 180 degrees. So you've talked about this some, but I want to get a little bit more into it about the first feelings, the first thoughts you had when you were diagnosed, when the diagnosis was really confirmed. I would say in the MRI, it was sort of a gasp of absolute shock and almost like a whiteout of my entire brain, just this isn't real. But then once that Decadron kicked in, which kicks in very rapidly, by the way, and it works very, very effectively on cerebral edema, but it was absolute rage and anger for no reason at all. And it made it very difficult to focus and concentrate. And furthermore, that Decadron, I think I slept, and I know it sounds like I'm probably exaggerating, but probably like 30 minutes total from the Friday the 13th of April until I had surgery on the 24th. Just in impossible, incredible insomnia. And then I think another thing that was kind of crept in at the same time was sort of an intense, immobilizing sadness. I'm the parent that makes my kids laugh almost constantly. You know, I can just look at my daughter and she'll just laugh for no reason. It made me sad that my kids are going to have to grow up 
you know, without sort of the clown, like making them laugh and, you know, their boyfriend breaks up with them or they fail a test to kind of make it all right. I didn't cry all that much, but it was just a, it was, it was heartbroken. You know, it was heartbroken for them. I really didn't care so much about what happened to me. How do you see life differently, if at all? I mean, might your life philosophy might be the same, your outlook might be the same, but maybe it's not after being diagnosed with GBM. Now, every day is worth so much. And I finally understand those terminally ill, you know, lung cancer patients who are terribly symptomatic, why they let the oncologist try another drug, you know, let's do a pleurodesis, etc. I finally really get why those patients let them be talked into these treatments that have very low yield. Because as far as I know, life is better than death. You know, I know what I have now and I really like to keep it. Now that it's being taken away from me slowly, life is better than death, but maybe that'll change after I die. You were talking before about the loss that you really feel or the thing that you feel the most is the loss for your family or the future loss for your family. How do you prepare them for that future reality? I prepare my family with how I've always done everything in life, which is 100% honest, 100% direct, unsugarcoated, sometimes slightly brutal, because it's better to get it over with than to kind of creep along and not tell everybody the truth. I try to keep humor in it because that's what I do with my patients. And humor is a very important thing in life. And I told my son, I said, so... We have dermistid beetles, which are the beetles that clean, you know, a skull, including the periosteum where you'll, you could put a skull in. So we put a turkey skull in from a turkey hunt that I did this spring. We ordered the dermistid beetles off of the internet, 65 bucks. We figured out how to set up the medium for them. We, you know, got this big colony going and they clean this turkey head in about 48 hours, totally white. Amazing. <laughs> So I told my son, grab like a handful of dermistid beetles and throw them in the coffin as they're closing it so that I, you know, I, I, you know, it's quick just to keep it light and funny. And, you know, like, cause this dermistid beetle thing actually is kind of interesting about death. I mean, it's sort of death in your face. It's weird for sure, but I have a weird outlook on lots of things, which I think is why I'm doing this interview. But I mean, how many children have like defleshed a skull with dermistid beetles? Like none. But this is a good way, especially for a very sensitive boy. I'm very close to him. You know, we are hunting partners and lacrosse partners. And I mean, the love that I have for him, you know, not to say I love my daughter any less, but, you know, it's going to be very hard on him. Very, very hard on him. And his life is dramatically going to change. Are there things that you thought, you know, you'd have all the time in the world to impart on your kids that now you're like, this is moving to the top of the list, to the front of the queue as a priority. Gosh, there's so many things. And I have so many conversations with my kids where I'm, I'm trying to parent for the next 10 or 12 years in a year. One of the biggest things that I tell them over and over again is fight for what is right. Even if it costs you your job or money or a relationship, a teacher giving you a bad grade, fight for what is right, fight for the underdog. And don't give up just because someone tells you, oh, you don't have the grades for that. Those little conversations that you hear a thousand times with your parents before you move out for college, I'm not going to get those. 
you know, that silence that you feel, it's real. What's happening to Christian isn't unique. This isn't some obscure story. He's dying. Everybody dies, but he has an acute awareness and knowledge that this is coming very soon in the prime of his life. How he describes his preferences on how to speak to someone who has been diagnosed with cancer or any terminal disease, really. No, a lot of people feel that way. It gets exhausting constantly talking about the disease, whereas someone who has a terminal illness, often they just want to engage in normal life. And most importantly, it was like a bell ringing when he said this, every day is worth so much. It's easy to lose sight of that when you think that you have thousands or tens of thousands of days left. But memento mori, remember mortality and choose your big and small decisions accordingly. We're going to change focus now to clinical medicine. In fact, the original idea for this podcast was going to be called What the Hospitalist Wish You Knew, something like that. But you can see that there were some things that we needed to talk about before we got to this particular subject matter. And I've worked with hundreds of hospitalists in my career. Christian, he's one of the best, if not the best ever. He's honest, he's forthcoming, always ready to do the hard work, and always ready to call you out if you haven't. As you can guess, there is no sugarcoating here. What he says might piss you off. It might piss you off a lot. That's okay. We all feel frustrations with other specialties. And this is what's going on in the mind of at least one hospitalist on the other end of the line. Some advice if you ever find yourself a patient. The first steps to take when you are in a hospital room. Now, if you want to save yourself from hearing some things that might not be flattering to emergency medicine, just stop here. That's okay. Enjoy your day. No problem. Otherwise, put on your thick skin and here we go. I think there's a lot of frustration between the two groups. I would always try, if I thought it was a bogus admission, to come down and look at the patient. Because especially if you know this ER doctor for years, they're generally not calling you up with garbage. Or maybe it is garbage. <laughs> Let me ask you about that. So you've got a patient in the ED, switching gears a little bit here. And for the most part, it's a BS admission. It's not all BS, of course, because there's a kernel of something in there where we think the patient's going to be worse off if they leave the hospital. So from your perspective, and I mean, a lot of this is salesmanship, or maybe it's just not salesmanship, it's candor. What's the best approach to get a patient admitted and not get pushback? The pushback occurs from two things. One is chronic admissions by a particular ER doctor. So if you're an ER doctor that's getting lots of pushback from lots of different hospitalists, then the problem might actually be you. And it seems that despite everything that's happened with emergency medicine, ER doctors still think that their job is to reduce dislocated shoulders, intubate the opioid overdose and treat septic shock and put a chest tube in for a rollover. Yes, that's why they went into it, but that's not what emergency medicine is anymore. It's partly that, you know, if you're lucky to be assigned in, a, say, a big hospital to the trauma base, but most of it is chronic medical management in a system that has poor and failing primary care. And so I think you're going to have to turn it where you actually read, you know, the journal of family medicine and see what do you do with a chronic daily headache instead of saying, okay, I gave a lot, it didn't work, admit. Some of these admissions that we get, you know, oh, he's got terrible gout. What? You're going to admit a patient for gout? It should be, okay, he's a 70-year-old man who has no family members in the area 
and can't walk. He's an unsafe discharge. Okay, we'll take him, put him on steroids. We'll get him in a you know, nursing home for some rehab and start him on some allopurinol in a couple of days. That's interesting what you just said there, because you just presented the same patient in two different ways. Now, the reality of that patient, the objective looking at the guy is the same, but it sounds like what you're saying is that the way to make this transaction, which it kind of is a transaction, work is to be very specific as to what is the reason you are admitting, not just, I'm just throwing my hands up because I don't know what the hell to do with this person. (laughs) This person needs higher resource care than they can get at home because they will be unsafe without that. Have you really tried to have the sister who lives 10 towns away to come down and take them home? Or did you just listen to, oh, I've got no family members near me. Okay, well, who's your closest family member? Oh, it's my sister, Jean. Okay, what's her number? Oh, hey, Jean, we got your your brother here. He's got terrible gout, and we're going to get him on the right treatment and get him better. Can you come down here and take him home? Because we don't typically admit patients with gout. Oh, sure, I'll be right there. Did you do that? I want the ER doctor to have done that. And then he can say, and he even talked to Jean, who's over in you know, 10 towns away, and Gene has just had a broken hip. There's nobody for this guy, and that's fine. And I think a key thing is, say it's a bogus admission, and maybe that's not a bogus admission, but a key thing to say to sell that admission is, he can't walk. If you use those words, then you're basically home free. You just gave like (laughs) 500,000 ER docs a skeleton key to get all their patients admitted. All right. Well, let me shift that a little bit because, you know, we have an idea of what makes a strong emergency medicine doc. From your perspective, you see the care that we give, you get the phone calls and have an interaction on a different level and from a different frame, a different perspective. What do you see as the qualities that make a good ER doc, a great ER doc and one that needs some help? I would just escalate it because there's only one thing that you can do, and that's to be a great ER doctor. You can't be a mediocre one or, you know, a poor one. You got to get out. The best quality is a broad differential diagnosis and, you know, have ruled out the top six of those to the best of your ability. You know, we had this practice in medical school where you presented to the patient in one sentence. And I think a lot of ER doctors don't do that or haven't had that exercise. But if you can present a patient in one sentence, you're generally going to have thought about a lot of it or have the definitive diagnosis, and it's going to sell the patient because it's going to sound like you know what you're doing. And I think the vast majority of physicians do. What do you see as the least admirable trait in ear doctor? What is the thing that frustrates you the most? In quotes, I don't really know what's going on, end quotes. And there are things where it takes several days for the staff abscess to show up in the quadricep. But, you know, some old lady that comes in, I can't walk. Like, why can't she walk? She has terrible pain in her quadriceps. I mean, it's excruciating pain. We did an MRI on her. There wasn't any fat stranding. There was no fluid collection. But her CK is high. You know, this could be, you know, a myositis. This could be an abscess. This could be, but she's unsafe. She can't walk. She's got, you know, low grade temperature. But don't ever say those words out loud of, I don't really know what's going on. I'm like, I want to hang up on you. (laughs) And so if I hear those words, my brain is turned off to that ER doctor. I'll figure it out myself. I want to go back to your experience as a patient. Tell me about adhesive tape. You know, everybody says I have a high pain threshold. 
I don't. I have a very low pain threshold because, you know, I'm basically a Sasquatch. If I had to do it all over again, I'd clip everybody hair on my whole body because the adhesive tape would grab that hair and rip it out. And it was actually, you know, speaking of pain, the pain from that was several orders magnitude higher than the pain from the neurosurgery itself. And then we think about tape is no big deal. And sometimes we have these people that are, you know, in the ICU and they have, you know, art line in, we're taping it and take the tape off before you wake them up. There's no reason to suffer like that. And all these interventions that we do, these central lines, these arterial lines, these IVs and Foley's, they cause significant suffering unnecessarily, I think, a lot of the times. And I don't think as docs, we're quick enough to remove them. Hospital rooms, even when they look clean, can be gross. What was your take on that? I went to the supermarket and bought a whole bunch of cleaning supplies because I know a lot of these nosocomial acquired infections, particularly skin infections, are from suboptimally cleaned rooms. So the neuro ICU, impeccable, unbelievable care. But like everywhere else, acute care is basically acute care, but for neuro patients, it's not the same. You know, it's a little more run down. And so they gave me a shower chair. There's a bunch of body hairs, butt hairs on this thing. And I told the nurse, I was like, look, I need a new shower chair. She's like, why? I'm like, there's butt hairs all over it. And so then, you know, and my sister's very neat fanatic too, literally scrubs the entire room on every surface. My take is, is if you have family that can clean, what's the harm? There's a study that you've wanted to do for years about a particular physical exam finding that right now, once you say it becomes official. Tell me about the Maurer sign. I noticed with aortic stenosis, of course, we've got, you know, the systolic murmur often radiates to the carotids. But I noticed that with severe or critical aortic stenosis, that you could also hear the murmur over the left scapula on the spine, because bone transmits sound better. If you heard aortic stenosis murmur, that that patient typically would have severe or critical aortic stenosis. And why would that be important? It'd be important in places like India. In US, a patient with AS gets an echo every single year. And it seems excessive. And maybe every other year it would be enough. At $1,400 an echo, that's a lot of money to be spent. But in, say in a place like India, where there's no real good access to an echo, maybe I'm mistaken, I haven't been to India or been in that, you know, how what kind of access, but I'm presuming that the access would be limited. That if the primary care doc every year listened for the Maurer sign, and one year all of a sudden it was there, that patient should make the trek into the city and have an echo done, especially the asymptomatic patient. If they're symptomatic, they need an echo. But this is something I thought about, and I basically got this diagnosis before I had a chance to actually test it. Somebody listening out there, <laughs> you have a study design, and you already have a pre-named sign. You didn't have to worry about the hubris <laughs> of naming the sign after yourself. It's already got a guy's name attached to it. So easy study to do. Just get three people to listen to the spine of the scapula, get some echo action, done. The patient's going to get admitted, or if they're in the hospital for any cardiac stuff, the echo is going to be done. And if the Maurer sign is bogus, great. That's how you'll be known in perpetuity for the guy who had this <laughs> bogus sign. That doesn't work. <laughs> if you could encapsulate a philosophy, like a philosophy of medicine or an approach to being a clinician, maybe a message to the medical community, what would you say? Or what would you say to the listener? Something you think is important 
overlooked or maybe even not thought of at all? If you want to get home on time, you've gone into the wrong career. I kind of encapsulate that with don't be lazy. You must tirelessly work for the patients. It's the patient, the patient, the patient. You know, we feel sorry for ourselves. Oh, we're tired and we saw 30 patients and the patient, the patient, the patient. Thanks, Christian. Yes, sir. The Prescription for Excellence from Dr. Christian Maurer. Work hard, don't be lazy, and remember who this is really all for, the patient. And from this conversation, the take home for me, and it's something I now say to myself each morning, really trying to remember, trying to embody it, and it might not be the only secret to life, but it's certainly one of them. Every day is worth so much. And to close this story, in May 2019, Christian Maurer died. He was not only my colleague, he was my friend. And in his last months, we talked a lot about his kids, his wife, and how he wanted to be remembered. And of course, we also talked about completely stupid stuff just like he wanted, like banana milkshakes, how noisy he was in the adjacent call room, the patients we cared for over the years, submarine movies, and every time I'd recommend some TV show or a movie or a book, he had this great response. He'd stop me and say, I just bought it while you were talking. When you got brain cancer, you don't care how much it costs. You don't wait for it to go on sale. You just get it. I'll miss you, buddy. And on that note, we will close this episode of Stimulus and close 2020. Be well, my friends, and keep on rocking.